Father, we're mindful this morning that genuine holiness comes at a cost. But it's freeing and it's life-giving. And it's what we were designed for. It's our heart's true home. And so this morning, Lord, we ask you to bend our knee and train us by joy and by trial. Train us to be more like you, to more fully reflect you. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, so two weeks ago, we began this conversation about our participation in the work of holiness in our lives. And we said, first of all, if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we've got to understand and act on the profound change of identity, which has been realized in us. We've got to understand and act on the profound change of identity, which has been realized in us. We said that maybe one of the most exciting places and clearest places to go in all of the scriptures, if we're going to have a conversation about our participation in personal holiness, is Romans chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I want to ask you this morning, because we're going to be working our way through all of Romans chapter 6, but especially the back half of it, which we have not read yet. I'm going to ask you to look at Romans 6. If you have it on your phone, you just dial in Romans 6. If you have a physical Bible, a printed Bible, then... Romans is kind of toward the back. If you get to Acts, keep going north. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far, go south. Romans chapter 6. We said if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must understand and act on the profound change of identity which has been realized in us. To tee off this conversation in Romans 6, we looked quickly at Romans 5. We said it gives us kind of the immediate background for Romans 6. And we said that the last point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 5 is no matter how dark and deep we go into sin, God's grace is deeper still. We said we cannot out God's grace. Where sin grows large, grace grows larger still. Where sin grows large, grace grows larger still. Literally, Paul says, but when sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we acknowledge that the Apostle Paul's first century audience and us alike, if we really get what Paul's saying, our response is a really spiritual, what? What? You can't mean that, Paul. Are you, Paul, are you saying that behavior doesn't matter? Are you saying just sin and God's grace is there? What about the rules? Paul, should we sin so that grace might increase and just go on sinning and grace gets larger? And he begins Romans chapter 6 with that question, I believe, because he knows it's on the minds of his hearers. Paul's answer? Don't be ridiculous. We can't keep on sinning because that's not who we are anymore. In other words, holiness is not about an external guardrail, which we do our best to stay within. It's not checking rules and regulations, do this and don't do this. Holiness is about an internal change. We have been changed. We have been changed on the inside. This is the foundation of personal holiness, the internal change that happens within us. This internal change then becomes the 
focal point of what Paul says in the first three paragraphs of Romans chapter 6. First of all, he acknowledges the reality of this change, and then he outlines what's happened because of the change. He says, first of all, because of this internal change in us, we've become the kind of people who can look forward to our own resurrection. Death is not an end for us. He says in in verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says, secondly, because of this internal change, we become the kind of people who have a new self, which is we're no longer ruled by sin. He says it like this, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. They don't do it anymore, and we are dead people. The third thing he says is, because of this internal change, we become the kind of people within whom there's a new life. There's a new kind of thing at work right now. He tees that off in verse 4. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He picks that up. Verse 9. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has master over him, nor does it us. I pray every Wednesday morning with a group of pastors from our area. I've invited all of the pastors in in this immediate area to come to our church office on Wednesday morning. And anywhere from two to six pastors will join me regularly on Wednesday morning. Just pray for our area and pray for the needs of our church. We check with one another, how you doing? And And then we spend time in prayer. We were going around the circle this past week and asked for prayer requests. And one of the pastors said, you know, I have a very special prayer request for a young couple in our church. This woman, the wife, has been struggling with, I can't even remember what it is, but lung disease is degenerative. And her lung capacity is, I won't quote because I can't remember the specifics, but it's really, really limited. And she's gotten to the point where she almost couch and bedridden. She really just can't sustain any activity. And so to their surprise, they got a call this past week from doctors saying there are a set of lungs available that are in great shape. We've got to arrange for surgery really quickly. We're going to do a lung transplant, which I have to be honest, I didn't know they did that, but they're going to do a complete two-lung transplant in this young woman, and it was to happen later that day. So, you know, we'll find out this week how she did. The doctor said the the real trial, the real issue is getting your body to accept the lungs. But if it does, I want you to know you're going to be brand new. You're going to be taking in kind of life with every breath in a way that you haven't for years. Listen, you're not only going to feel better constantly, all day, every day. You're not only going to sleep better, you're going to eat better. Food will taste differently to you, and you're going to find over time, if your body accepts these lungs, your skin will begin to change because it will be receiving real nourishing oxygen. For the, Your hair will change. The color of your hair will change slightly. Your hair will grow more vibrant. That's what's happened to us. We've had an identity transplant, and everything is new. Sorry to pick on you, Lisa, but I don't know if you remember uh, Lisa Jones' testimony. And if, if you haven't heard it or if you don't remember it this Sunday, Lisa gave it. I want to encourage you to 
say something to Lisa, ask her about it. But my favorite thing, part of Lisa's testimony, other than her complete wackiness, my favorite part of Lisa's testimony is uh, she goes to this church, stumbles in, her eyes are open, scales removed, she gets it, and something happens in her heart and in her mind and in her will. She steps forward in a different direction. She walks outside, sees the same person. She gets in her car, but she says everything was different. The colors of the trees were different. We've had a change of identity. And you and I need to understand that and act on it if we're going to grow in personal holiness. The second thing we said two weeks ago is if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must practice Christian ritual rightly understood. I'm going to go back to verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, for buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We noted two weeks ago how striking it is that Paul used baptism here as his starting point for his discussion of our change of identity. Now, this could have been just incidental, but I don't think so. I think Paul was recognizing that there are Christian rituals which, when rightly understood, can act as audiovisual aids to personal holiness for us. And we said that what Paul says about baptism here could also be said about Christian ritual in general. When it's wrongly understood, and this has been the experience of many of us, when Christian ritual is wrongly understood, it's numbing. It actually inoculates us against really experiencing God. But when Christian ritual is rightly understood, it's life-giving. It's a guide toward holiness. Then last week we picked up the topic again, still in Romans chapter 6, and we said thirdly, If we're going to grow in personal holiness, our connection to God cannot be primarily motivated by what benefits us. If we're going to grow in personal holiness, our connection to God cannot be primarily motivated by what benefits us. Paul doesn't make this point directly in Romans 6, but it's assumed in everything he says. And I think we have to highlight this point because it's so very important. Again, looking at Paul's imagery in 6 verses 1 through 10, those first three paragraphs, Paul says this, we are those who have died with Christ. That's the image that Paul reaches for. We have to allow this image to grab our attention. Paul could have chosen any number of metaphors or images to make his point, but he was inspired by God to choose this one. So let's notice that dead people are not benefited. Dead people don't think of their own good. They don't have a good. So growth in personal holiness is not about us, or or at least it's not about our benefit. In fact, sometimes God breaks us to answer our prayer for grace and faith and love. In fact, holiness cannot be arrived at by thinking of our own benefit, our happiness, our good, our comfort. When we focus on those things, we do not get holiness. And ironically, we don't get benefits either. Our benefit comes as a byproduct of holiness, but our benefit cannot be our primary pursuit. This is why throughout Scripture we find when someone is convicted of their sin, they say things like, against you and you only have I sinned, God, because it's about God. Our pursuit of holiness is about God. It's about pleasing God, serving God, reflecting God's character and likeness. And when we are in pursuit of that, then holiness comes as a byproduct. And as we grow in holiness, we are ultimately benefited. 
Maybe not how we would have imagined, but we are benefited nonetheless. We also made note that Paul might very well have been thinking of his older brother Jesus and his teaching in Luke 9 when he offered this imagery. We looked at Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, the instrument of their own death, daily, and follow me. We offered a weird analogy. You remember, if you were here last week, we said holiness is kind of like going out in the night sky and looking at a star. And I, Diane and I had been out the night before, and I would looked up and I noticed, I remembered the old principle. If you're out at night, you can especially notice, it's any star, but you can especially notice it with a fairly dim star. If you look at a fairly dim star and focus on the star, it disappears. Of course, that has to do with the rods and cones in our eyes and how we take in light. So what you have to do to really see the star is look just to the right or left of it and the star will come into focus again. And we said that's kind of like going out and looking directly at your benefit. And your life is in pursuit of your own good or your own happiness. And it disappears. But if you look just to the right of it, if you look to God, then our happiness as a byproduct comes into view. Sometimes not in the way that we imagined it, but in the way we were designed. Finally, last week we said if we're going to grow in personal holiness, we've got to refuse to follow our evil desires. To make this point, we looked at the next paragraph, Romans 6, 11 through 14, especially verse 12. So I'm going to read this again. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Much to say about that, but we don't have time. We had to say here and point out that all of our desires are certainly not bad and that's not the point God wants to make. But there are desires within us which lead to our emotional and spiritual death. Either because of the way we pursue them or sometimes because of the context in which we pursue those desires or sometimes the desires themselves. They're death-inducing. And we must refuse those desires if we're going to grow in personal holiness. We actually offered some practical advice. We came up with a prayer pattern that we offered. And I encourage all of us to practice this prayer pattern, especially when we're actually faced with, am I going to pursue this death-inducing desire, this piece of rage, or this lust, or this materialism, or this pride? Am I going to follow that temptation or not? I encourage us to practice these prayer points. Number one, First, we have to renounce the death-inducing desires which roam around in our hearts and minds. We have to renounce our sin. We looked at Proverbs 28, 13. I'll let you look at that later. I'm not going to read it now. Secondly, we said we have to take every thought captive related to those desires. Every time we begin to think in that direction, no, instead I'm going to think in this direction. And finally, we said we have to look for God's way out of following the situation or temptation induced by the desire. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 for that. Okay, take a breath. Pause for dramatic effect. All of this 
can sound like a lot of work. After all, when temptation strikes us, it feels a great deal easier just to submit. So let me say three things about that before we get to our final point. Number one, the primary work in our holiness is accomplished not by our willpower, but by God's Spirit working in us. We're going to talk about that next week. The primary work in our holiness is accomplished not by us, but by God's Spirit working in us. Second thing I want to say about the effort toward holiness. There is work to be done. There is obedience that must be wrought by us on our behalf. God requires that we participate with His work within us. And finally, the work is worth doing. The work of holiness is worth doing. Ray Schmidt gave me a book on tape a couple of weeks ago, The Utter Relief of Holiness by John Eldridge. I recommend it. It's awesome. At one point in his discussion of the utter relief of holiness, don't you love that language? Eldridge offers this really practical boots-on-the-ground illustration. He talks about a friend of his who was at work one day and I think had a difficult relationship with his, his boss, his supervisor. And they were at a point of perhaps ongoing particular conflict, tension. It wasn't explosive, or I didn't get the impression from what Eldridge said that it was explosive, but it also wasn't wonderful. So he's in his boss's office one day, standing in front of his supervisor's desk, and the supervisor gets called out of the office. So the supervisor sitting behind the desk, gets called out, stands up and says, give me 10 minutes, I need to go attend to this. Supervisor walks out, Eldridge's friend left standing at the desk, no big deal, left standing at the desk in supervisor's office, minding his own business, looks around and notices a letter on the desk, and the letter's open, and it has his name in it. Reading upside down, he realizes that he is referenced in this letter. He didn't go snooping. He didn't mean to see the letter, but he did. He saw the letter. He sees his name. So now he thinks, wonder what that letter says. <laughs> it's from his supervisor to his supervisors. So he says to himself, I should not read that letter. It's not my letter. I didn't write it, and it wasn't written to me. It just happens to be open on his desk. He didn't intend that. He doesn't want me to read it. It's not for me. I shouldn't read that letter. Integrity would require me not to read that letter. Personal holiness would suggest I should not read that letter. So he doesn't for a few seconds. And then he reaches and grabs the letter, turns it around, and reads it and realizes that his boss, his supervisor, in a way that to him feels very unfair, downloads about him saying things that have not been said to him to his boss. So now, tension, awkwardness, distance, anger, maybe even rage, have entered into this relationship between worker and supervisor. And he can't say anything because he's read the letter out of turn. 
And then Eldridge asked a beautiful question of utter relief. Think about how much would have been saved if he'd done the holy thing. Think about what could have been saved in that relationship if he'd only operated with holiness. Think about it from both sides. If his supervisor had acted in a manner that was holy, they would have had a man-to-man conversation and settled it. Because if holiness had been in operation, they would have resolved it. And if Worker had been acting in holiness, even if the letter had been written, he would have never read it. The work is worth doing. You are in work situations. You are in, for those of you who have children, you're in parenting situations. For those of you who are married, you are in marriage situations hourly where acting in a manner that is unholy may feel right. It certainly teases something within you, but in the long run, it costs. It costs more than the effort toward personal holiness. The work is worth it. By the way, let me say to those of you who are investigating Christ and are on the outside of this process, it's a work, I'm convinced, you investigate this for yourself, I'm convinced it is a work that cannot be done without Him. Finally, let's end our journey in Romans 6, make our fifth point, number five. If we're going to grow in personal holiness, we must make ourselves slaves to God. So we're going to look at Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, and I'm going to ask you, if you would, let's go old school. This is even older than 1986. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. So I'm reading the back half of Romans chapter 6. I'd love for you to look along. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible. He circles back to the same question. What then? Knowing that his readers are scratching their heads thinking, wait, what? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Okay, the guardrails are removed. What, Paul? So, you're thinking, should we just do whatever we want? Don't be ridiculous. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, look, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Think about it this way. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Just as you used to do that, you know how to offer yourself as a slave. You've done it to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So just as you used to offer yourselves to that, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Look, think about it this way. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. You know that. Those are death-inducing desires. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Sin doesn't just enter our lives. It reigns. It dominates. said it in verse 12, didn't he? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And he repeats that same principle here in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Sin doesn't just enter, it reigns. We're not masters of our own fate. And despite our attempts to fool ourselves, our experience constantly confirms this for us. We are not completely free agents. You may remember from freshman psych class, those of you who went to college, that there's a school of psychology formulated by B.F. Skinner and John Watson, you remember those names, which believes that our behavior can be explained and even predicted based on external stimuli alone. So in other words, Skinner and Watson and their disciples literally believe that you don't need to understand anything about internal processes to explain human behavior. This school of thought is called behaviorism or behavioral psychology. Skinner, Watson, and their disciples would have us believe that we are completely controlled by our environment. And here's the point. There's enough truth in their theories that they've actually had success over the years treating certain psychological disorders and conditions. There's enough truth here, not because we're determined by our environment, but there's enough truth here because sin doesn't just enter, it reigns. It controls. We find the same idea in philosophy as well. Determinism is the philosophical companion to behaviorism. And according to determinists, for every event, this is what determinism believes, for every event, including human action, there exist conditions that could cause no other event. I'm going to say that again. For every event, including human actions, there exists conditions that could cause no other event. And there are schools of social scientists who have built their worldviews and their practices on determinism. Again, there's enough truth here to allow for certain successes in fields like sociology and anthropology based on determinism. There's enough truth here because sin doesn't just enter, it reigns. It becomes determinative in us. It takes over. If we are apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are not masters of our own fate. Okay, God is not having a conversation with us here about behaviorism or determinism. Your choices matter. In fact, you must choose. And he's calling you to it. I think we've said as much over and over again for the last few weeks. But it's also true that we're not completely free agents. We're not in control. Our willpower is not enough. In fact, Paul doesn't mind being a bit rude to make sure we get his point and to make sure he has our attention. This is what Paul's saying in effect. He says, hey, you have a really important choice to make. You get to decide whose slave you will be. 
you will either serve your own tendencies, your selfish ends, and your death-inducing desires, or you will serve God. There is no other choice available to you. He intends to put us in our place. Oh, there are many places where the Apostle Paul elevates our human dignity to standards unimaginable. Western philosophy and our understanding of the self is built on Christian theology. But at this point, he wants to make sure that we understand you basically have a choice. Serve your self-induced, death-inducing desires or serve God. Nothing else is available to you. And here's the thing. If we're left to our own devices, we will always choose to be slaves to our death-inducing desires. If we are left to our own devices, we will always choose to be slaves to our death-inducing desires. Those death-inducing desires, you guys, are not always murder and wild sexual escapades. Sometimes they look very, very nice, but they're always in service of self. And eventually they deteriorate relationships and lead to death. Emotional and relational death. Even those times when they look good on the surface. Over the long run, they don't produce good fruit. If left to our own devices, we will always choose to be slaves to our death-inducing desires. Desires which don't just enter, they reign. They become determinative of our actions. But we are not left to our own devices. God, by his spirit, makes us an offer. He begins to bring something new to life in us. God begins to bring something new to life in us. We come to understand who he is and to understand and see ourselves differently. Let me read again verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. In other words, we think about the world differently. We've followed a pattern of teaching and our minds are transformed. And this happens from our hearts. Our emotions are unsettled and then rocked and then changed. Our hearts are reformed and made new. And then we make a new choice. We choose to follow God's way and not our own way. We come to see, really see, that following our own way was really just slavery to death-inducing desires. And by our will, our allegiance has been claimed and we choose something different. Mind, heart, and will loving Him and slavery to Him by choice. Then verse 19. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. I can think of at least three things, and you may think of more. I can think of at least three things we do to support our death-inducing desires. Did you follow his argument? Just like you used to offer yourselves in slavery to your death-inducing desires, so now, in the same way, offer yourselves in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. I can think of at least three things that we used to do to support our death-inducing desires. Number one, we used to make plans to accommodate our death-inducing desires, didn't we? 
Okay, I don't, I don't think that there is any beer at home. And honestly, I need a little buzz if I'm going to get to sleep tonight. And I just need to feel better. And I don't want to go in Ashburn because somebody might see me. And I don't want my wife to check the state. I need to get some cash out. I know of a great place. I've gone there regularly. It's over in Sterling. I'll pick up a little something, bring it home. I'll leave it in the outside refrigerator. And then when she goes to the bathroom, she goes upstairs. I'll just go I'm going downstairs to watch football. And I'll just grab a few beers. And it, maybe it turns into a six-pack. But I'm not thinking about that right now. Because I'm not making plans for how to make my wife better. I'm making plans to accommodate my death-inducing desire. Secondly, I think we meditate on the objects of our death-inducing desires. We meditate on the objects of our death-inducing desires. We construct scenarios. I can't believe what she said to me at work. I can't believe what she did. I can't believe how undermining that was. Well, first, I'm going to talk to the whole group. She has a presentation next week. I'm going to make sure that that priest, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to, now nursing our rage. We do the same thing with materialism, don't we? The catalog comes and, wow. We do the same thing with our lust, don't we? We meditate on the objects of our death-inducing desires. Third thing I can think of that we do is we long for and we hope for our death-inducing desires. Oh, if we had granite countertops, look, the house would be more valuable when we ultimately sell it one day, and we could do so much better at entertaining small group at our house. And I'm convinced that I would feel better about my space and about our lives. We long for, we hope in, we place our happiness in death-inducing desires. So what do we do now? We make plans to pursue God. I'm dying to see who wins this football game, but I need to go to bed if I'm going to get enough sleep to be able to lock in my day with God. If I'm going to have an opportunity to pursue Him in the morning and give my day to Him and make sure we're together, really make sure I'm with Him, then I've got to go to bed right now. We make plans to pursue God. We meditate on Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus, how would you feel and react? What would you do if you were at work and she did that to you? What would you do? Let's think. What did you do? Oh, yeah, okay. Blessed are those who, when you're persecuted, Jesus, I don't even like you, but I love you. <laughs> we meditate on Jesus. We think of Jesus. When you felt the kind of discouragement, despair that I'm feeling right now, Jesus. Did you ever feel that? I mean, it must have been easy for you, son of God and all of that. Oh, yeah, I remember you were sweating blood and you said, take this from me. And What did you do? And I go read that passage and I focus on Jesus. You meditate on Him and finally we put our hope in Jesus and in eternity. We put our hope there. Alex and Kevin asked Diane to lead a, a small group with the 6th grade girls at Gateway. And those of you who are parents 
of uh, sixth grade girls. Number one, it is a great group. Gateway, we believe it's what God has called us to do to, to be and build authentic Christian community. And I want to encourage, seriously, some of you adults to kind of get to know and get connected. Our group of sixth grade, fifth and sixth grade girls, really, this is a special group. I think they're going to make a lot of noise as they come uh, through Gateway's youth program. And there's a lot of leadership, a lot of gifts there. And Diane loves this group. So if your kids don't go missing for a week, you can call me. They're probably at my house because she wants to hijack a few of them. It's not hijack, is it? It's kidnap. Yes. (laughs) She wants to kidnap a few of them. This past week, she met for the first time with the sixth grade girls. And so she's given them an introduction. And they're going to do this curriculum together that's called Becoming You or something like that, right? Whatever it is, yeah. It's really, it's, it's a fancy way of talking about holiness with sixth grade girls. And so Diane introduced that by saying, hey, you know, I saw this movie one time, and of course all of you will recognize it immediately. It's that great American classic, 13 Going on 30. And it's the, the opening scene of 13 Going on. It stars Jennifer Garner and, and Mark Ruffalo. And 13 Going on 30 starts with them as kids. They're in middle school, and it's not Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo. They come later, but it's two kids playing a middle school version of Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo, and they have, you know, a pretty early boy-girl party over at the character's house who will end up being Jennifer Garner. And Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo live right next door to one another, middle school, boy-girl. And Mark Ruffalo's kind of a little chubby guy, and it's not like they're attracted to one another, really, although the Mark Ruffalo character desperately is in love with the Jennifer Garner character. So this sets you up. There's Jennifer Garner. She's having the middle school party, and the cool girls come in, the mean girls. And they come to her party, and they walk downstairs into the basement, and all of a sudden, the Jennifer Garner character changes. And she begins to act cool and aloof and mean to the Mark Ruffalo character because she's going along with the crowd. And Diane's telling this scenario to the girls. Maybe they've seen the movie or maybe they haven't, and she gives them the payoff line. At one point, the Jennifer Garner character embarrasses Mark Ruffalo. And Mark Ruffalo is storming out of the house and looks at the Jennifer Garner character and says, you're such a robot. And Diane looks at the sixth grade girls and says, what do you think he meant that you're such a robot? They were stunning. (laughs) Their answers were unbelievable. There was depth, there was richness. It was pretty incredible. The stuff they were reaching for. You know, Diane's looking for some little goofy Sunday school answer, and her responses were kind of like, yes, really, wow, yes. Okay, amazing. Lesson over. We got it. You know, you're, he, she's going along with everybody else. She's controlled by them. She's just doing what they're doing and more. Don't be such a robot. I mean, what's being offered to you and I is life. Don't be such a robot. Don't, oh, I need to get the new version of the Lexus SUV because... I look so good, and everybody else has it. By the way, I'd like to have the new version of the Lexus SUV. (laughs) Don't be such a robot. Imagine 
Terrible illustration, you make it up, do better over lunch with somebody. Imagine somebody comes along one day and, hey robot, mm, I'm programmed to listen to human voice. <laughs> listen, if you'll unplug that little wire from there and plug it instead into this whole different network, you didn't even realize that was there, but it's programmed into you. Plug it into this whole other network, you're going to find all kinds of life. And you'll, this is just a whole different programming over here. And you plug it in there, and you get to be who you were designed to be. Hey, don't forget this. Slavery to God is freedom. Slavery to God is life. Slavery to God leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Father, first of all, we submit our longings and our desires to you. And we submit our meditations to you. We ask you to train us to think about Jesus. Call him to mind this week. Lord, we want to make you the object of our longing. And we make plans right now in our minds. We are beginning to make plans for how we can pursue you this week, knowing that you've pursued us. Lord, make us holy. Set us apart so that we're hanging in and we're hanging out, but we're in color. Father, we submit the rest of our day to you that our agenda would be your agenda for us, that our plans would be your plans for us. And finally, Lord, search us and try us and see what's in us and show us the ways in which we're still making plans to accommodate sin. Show us the meditations of our heart, the places where we're thinking about, we're nursing lust. We've got scenarios that support and sponsor our pride, or we're contemplating and rehearsing our anger and our rage. We're right. Search us and try us, and show us your way.